So we're going to begin by uh, talking about the Ten Commandments. This is part two of the Ten Commandments. Part one was last week. I want to encourage you to go and listen to that if you haven't had an opportunity to do so. But I want to begin this week by talking about one of my favorite children's books, The Giving Tree. How many of you know The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein? Raise your hand. It's an amazing book. It's been around, I think, 50 or 60 years. It's, it's really incredible. If you're not familiar with the story, it's about a boy and a tree. And in this case, the tree is able to talk and sort of gesture and all that kind of thing. And so they have this friendship, this boy and this tree. And so the book begins with the boy uh, playing in the tree and climbing the tree. And I had my favorite climbing tree when I was a kid. So this really you know, resonated with me. And they have this great friendship, the boy and the tree. And then the book shows us as the boy grows older, he stays away from the tree for a while. And then when he comes back, uh, the tree is so excited to see him because it's been so long since he's seen him. And then the boy says to the tree, uh, or the tree says to the boy, excuse me, uh, come play in my branches, come, come swing, come, you know, let's get back to the way things were. I've missed you so much. And the boy says, you know, I'm too big to play in the tree now, but what I do need is money. Can you help me get some money? And the tree thinks about it and the tree says, well, you could, you could take my apples. You could take the fruit that I have and go sell it and that'll get you some money and then you'll be happy. And so the boy does and the tree's happy. And then some years pass and the boy comes back and he says to the tree, uh, hey, I don't need apples anymore. What I need now is wood to build a house. And so the tree says, well, if that'll make you happy, sure. So the tree gives the boy all the branches that the tree has. The boy cuts down all the branches. And then finally, really in the saddest part of the story, years and years pass, the tree misses the boy and the boy comes back to the tree and he says, you know, what I really need is a boat because I need to get away from here. I need to sail away into the distance. And you know, you read it as an adult and you think, man, something happened, right? The money didn't work out from the apples. The house he built, something happened. He doesn't want to be there anymore. Now he just wants to go. And so the tree in this amazing act of sacrifice says, sure, take, take me, take the trunk and make me into a boat and sail away. And there's more to say about the story of the giving tree, but what I want to focus on is the boy's desires. The boy wants different things at different times in his life. And the tree gives and gives and gives. And it's such a great story of, of self-sacrificial love. It's wonderful. But I think every one of us can relate to how the boy keeps coming up with stuff that he wants. The way that uh, my wife puts it uh, is you always want what you don't have. You always want what you don't have. So the boy comes to the tree and he needs money because he doesn't have any money. He comes to the tree and he needs wood to build a house because he doesn't have a house. There's always this next thing and this next thing and this next thing. And what's so difficult about that is that it's impossible to rest when you have the next thing that you're always after. What is that for you, church? What's the next thing? I know people who have risen high, high up in the corporate environment, that they have really risen to the top of their company, but it's not quite the top. It's almost the top. And their ambition says, you know, you need that next thing and they can't rest. Maybe you bought a home or you're renting a home and you're like, this is our starter house. This is great for now. There's a next thing. There's a next thing. There's a next thing. And that's good. But if you make that the object of your affection, if you make that the heart of your desire, it's going to take over. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's 
finding a pathway through this tumultuous time. Just get me through to the other side. Get me my vaccine and call it good. All these things are okay. Desire is not the issue. What happens is our desires become misshapen. And the people of Israel experience this in their, in their Exodus journey. And God meets them in the midst of that and gives them these 10 commandments, not as a set of rules to confine them, but as a pathway forward into the life that he wants for them. And the interesting thing about this, this focus today, we're going to focus on one commandment, the commandment about coveting. The interesting thing about this is we all experience it, and it is the only commandment that we can sort of get away with in secret. It's the only commandment that we can sort of pull down under the surface. Other people will notice if, you know, you lie to a degree, if you steal, if you commit murder, certainly. But coveting is different. Coveting is sneaky. It stays in the heart until it bursts out onto the scene. And, and my heart, my, my concern for our community as a pastor is that we've let coveting run away with us at times. And I want us to look at the scriptures and see how the scriptures sort of pull us back from that and give us a fresh perspective. So we're going to talk through this topic of coveting today through three different headings. Uh, they all start with the letter C, context, coveting, and contentment. Context coveting, and contentment. Now, to begin, what does it mean to covet? Webster's Dictionary defines coveting as desiring enviously, to desire enviously. And that'll be important. We'll come back to that in a little bit. We hear that in the text in Exodus 20, 17. But before we can get really deep into that, we got to remember where we are. So let's talk about our context. Why are we talking about this today? We're following the nation of Israel on their journey from Egypt into freedom. Remember that map that we've showed in weeks past? The context for today's passage is the people of Israel are moving forward in their journey. They're getting further and further away from their time as an enslaved people in Egypt. And they're getting closer and closer to the promised land, the land that God promised to their ancestors. But they've got a lot they got to go through before they can get there. Thus far in the study that we've been doing, they have had to long for water. They've had to long for food. They have had armed conflict with a, a neighboring nation. And then soon, not now, but soon, they are going to fall completely apart and worship a false god. They're going to give themselves over to an idol. And so last week, we learned that in advance of that, not ignorant to that, but in advance of that, God gives the people of Israel the opportunity to live into a covenant. And what is a covenant? It's simply a relationship between God and people, an agreement for protection and peace between God and people. God invites the Israelites into relationship in Exodus 19. And at the beginning of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, he codifies that. He gives them a clear pathway into engaging with that. And really, the first couple of commandments are all about how to live into this covenant relationship with God. So the context of today's commandments, the, specifically this one about coveting, it doesn't make a lot of sense unless you understand that it's given in a covenant. It's given in a relationship where people can be safe and free and challenged to be the people that God intends for us to be. So that's the context. Now let's talk about coveting. Coveting is to desire enviously. Where do we hear that in the text? We hear that in verse 17. I'll read that for us again. This is Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. This is kind of the tail end of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. A lot of uses of the word covenant and a lot of uses of the word neighbor. Let's talk about that for a minute. 
The key word in the text is to covet, and the Hebrew word for that is chamed. Chamed happens quite a bit in the Old Testament. It's a very common word. One of the most interesting places it pops up that's instructive for today is in Genesis 2 and 3. Genesis 2 is when we see human beings living as they were meant to be, in perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with creation, before sin enters the world. We see the word chamed when Adam and Eve look upon the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they see that it's desirable. And desire is a good thing. If we don't desire things, we're just sort of this like banal vanilla existence. Nobody wants to live without desire. But we don't live in a Genesis 2 world. We live in a Genesis 3 world. And in Genesis 3 is when that word chamed is used to covet. The people look at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the snake, the serpent, the evil one slips in there and begins to poison their desire so that it becomes corrupt. And as a result of the fall in Genesis chapter three, people desire covetously. They desire with a hunger that goes beyond themselves. So whenever we talk about coveting in the Bible, we're not just talking about being jealous for other people's stuff. We're talking about a posture of the heart. And that's what God's really concerned about for the people of Israel and for us. Follow me on this a little bit. God includes coveting in the Ten Commandments because he's invited Israel into covenant relationship with him. That's Exodus 19. The main thrust of this covenant is to love God and to love your neighbor. That's Deuteronomy 6. And so as Israel's wandering in the wilderness, they're figuring out both. They're figuring out how to live in relationship to God. And they do that by building a tabernacle, a mobile church, if you will. And they follow the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. This is all in the scriptures. And they grow in their ability to worship God. They're kind of getting that first part of the covenant down. But the second part of the covenant, to love others, that's challenging. And if you think about it, they're a nomadic people. They're almost like a group of refugees that we would see in our day. They're trying to figure out how to get from point A to point B. They don't have a lot of stuff, but they're starting to accumulate more stuff as they go on on their journey. They start out with not that many people in their tribe, in their party, but guess what? People living together, they start making babies. They start having more kids. They start seeing their numbers go up. The group starts to get larger and the group starts to get denser. Their density goes up as a population. The Israelites are a growing people. And when you're a growing people, there is more and more opportunity for conflict. So God is giving them this commandment about coveting because he knows they're going to start getting into conflict with each other. Hey, you took my stuff. Hey, you can't look at my wife that way. These kinds of things are starting to happen. But he's also giving them a warning about the heart. He's not just telling them, don't fight, knock it off. I don't want to listen to you guys scream at each other. He's saying, watch out for the motivations of the heart. This is where we get back to our situation. The Seattle area has grown exponentially in the last decade. The number of people moving here from all over the world is tremendous, and that's a good thing. But writ large, Seattle is a hyper-competitive society. Finding jobs, finding a place to live, finding resources, it is all highly competitive. And if that's true for our region, it is especially true on the east side. I can't tell you how many people who have, who have shared this story with me. We moved to Seattle. We loved it over there, but we needed more space. We wanted our kids to have great schools. We came to the east side, 
And boy, it's great, but man, are we tired? Do we have a lot of pressure on us? And this was in the before times, but I think it's still true now. Why? Because what my wife says is true. You always want what you don't have. And the east side's a tough place to live if you're always wanting the next thing. The problem with a hyper-competitive environment for jobs, for resources, for our kids to succeed, to find that next house, the problem with a competitive environment is that you can never rest. You can never put your feet up and say, you know what, I'm good, I have enough. It is super easy for us to get caught up in this hamster wheel of always wanting the next thing and it is super easy for us to hide how jealous we are of the success of people around us or the perceived success of people around us. Now that's coveting. Now let's talk about contentment. When we hear the word contentment, especially if you're in a hyper-competitive environment like a corporation or you're trying to run a small business, or you're trying to raise your kids up, hear me when I say this. Contentment is not complacency. It is not laziness. Contentment is a response to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It's where we say, look, my heart is first and foremost satisfied in the Lord. I'm happy with what the Lord has given to me. Sure, there are things that I want. There are things that I would, you know, possibly buy if I could. But deep down, I am content in the Lord. The Apostle Paul wrote about this. He said, I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to be in want. But I'll tell you what the through line is. It is Jesus Christ and his provision. He satisfies me. This is what I want for us, church. I want us to be a church where our hearts are so ordered around who Jesus is and his goodness to us and the sweetness of fellowship with him that we can say, you know what? It'd be nice to have a newer car, but this one runs fine. It'd be nice to expand our kitchen or remodel, but you know what? Contractors are backed up for months. Supplies are expensive. We can wait. It's okay. To resist coveting and to embrace contentment implies something that is in the text. It is a practice of rest that the Bible calls Sabbath. If you're struggling with coveting right now, let me ask you, when's the last time you took a break from your job, from this competitive pursuit, whatever it is in front of you? Because when the Bible calls us to rest, it doesn't just call us to be lazy, to put our feet up, to have a hammock in the backyard. It can be those things. But the Bible calls us to rest from the constant pursuit of the next thing. And on your Sabbath day, church, you should be resting from whatever that next thing is. And if you don't, if we don't, we will never right-size our desire. Our desires will continually get bigger and bigger and bigger. Our ability to solve problems will get smaller and smaller and smaller because unless we back off from the thing in front of us, it'll own us. To be able to be content means you have a healthy practice of Sabbath. What else does it mean? How else can we practice this in a practical way? Two encouragements. First, have a healthy critique of your desires. Have a healthy critique of your desires. Remember from our definition of coveting, coveting is to desire enviously. Desire is not bad in and of itself, but desire is a very bad roadmap if it's all we depend on. The next time you start daydreaming about something you want and that you don't have, pause and ask yourself the question, why do I want this? Why? 
what, what, like I walk by this really nice car and all of a sudden I'm not happy with my car. Why? Like, what's the deal here? What good would it do to have this thing that I want or to step into this relationship or to try to buy this or to try to stay up a couple more hours and work on this project? Is this just about me? Is this just for me that I'm doing this? Underneath any desire, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, should be this security, this, this sense of being home in the love of Jesus Christ. And is it easy to do that? No, we have to work on that. We have to remind ourselves of who Jesus is. I have to remind myself of the gospel daily, if not hourly. But when we are facing something that we desire, that we feel we're kind of coveting, that we're jealous of, stop and pray and ask yourself, is there a part of me that really wants that next thing because I'm not actually satisfied with Jesus. I haven't spent time with him. I miss him. I want to sit with him and be at his feet. That's the first encouragement. Have a healthy critique of your desires. The second encouragement is a focus on your neighbor. Focus on your neighbor. We fall straight down into the pit of coveting when it becomes all about us. But to remedy that, to address that, to right-size that, if we focus on others, it is a pathway into freedom. By taking my attention off of myself or my desires, I can redirect my energy toward other people, which is where God wants my focus to be. If you're starting to feel a, a rising tide of coveting in your life, of wanting something else, of being so dissatisfied with your job or your family, or your marriage or your situation, ask yourself, you know what? How's my neighbor doing? Which feels totally counterintuitive, but if you ask yourself, how's my neighbor How's, how's the person that lives next door to me? Are they doing okay? I haven't checked in on them lately. I haven't had a conversation with them. I haven't seen them in the front yard. I haven't talked to them. Coveting is so sneaky because it, it focuses us down on ourselves and we were never meant to live that way. How's my neighbor doing? How's your neighbor doing? How would Jesus have you love and serve them? How could you have a conversation with them that goes beyond sports and the weather? Church, I believe this deeply, that we cannot remedy coveting on our own. It's too sneaky. It's too pernicious. But by practicing these things that I've suggested and by practicing this next thing we're going to do together, practicing gratitude, we can wean our hearts off of this addiction to wanting other things. and We can be satisfied in the Lord. I believe it's possible. And I believe it's so much that we're going to use our breakout room time to try to Call, rise up this discipline together. So what we're going to do is we're going to be dismissed to our breakout rooms in just a moment. And you're going to do something a little different this week than you've done in weeks past. And if you're new with us, I'm so glad you're here. I hope you'll join the breakout rooms. I know it can be a little intimidating, but I want you to be a part of it. You're going to go to your breakout rooms and there's going to be a leader in your breakout room. And this person is going to guide you through a time of prayer. And the prayer is real simple. It's based on Exodus 2017, our preaching text today. And we're going to go kind of word by word through that prayer and pray over the things that it talks about. We're going to pray over housing. We're going to pray over our relationships with people in our families and in our neighborhoods. And we're going to give thanks to God for what we do have. And in so doing, I believe that those words of prayer will help shape our hearts in such a way that whatever addiction or whatever coveting we've brought in today, we're going to take a few steps away from that by the time we're done in prayer. I believe it. And so you'll pray in your breakout rooms. You'll have the chance to participate and throw in some words of your own. I hope you will. 
And then at the end of your prayer time, we'll rejoin together here and we'll continue in worship. So after I pray for us, you're going to uh, go to the bottom of your screen and you're going to click on the breakout rooms button and you're going to join a breakout room. And if you have any issues with that, please let me or one of our volunteers know. And we'll be happy to put you into a room. Let me pray for us.